This episode of For the Love with Jen Hatmaker is brought to you by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors. They can be big, difficult, even scary life things, and also small inconveniences that add up day after day. The thing is, when we keep them all bottled up on the inside and just try to grin and bear it, it can start to affect us and the people around us negatively. We may even isolate ourselves, which makes it even worse. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. This was the case for me when I was at the highest stress level in my life, where the stress was even having physical consequences for me. Therapy was a huge part of my healing journey to learn how to manage the stress. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash for the love today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash for the love. You have to understand that when they wrote We the People. It didn't include poor people, poor whites. It didn't include people who didn't own land. It didn't include women. It didn't include children. And it didn't include black people. It didn't include Native American people. It didn't include anyone but white have men. Men that had land that they taken. Welcome to the For the Love podcast with me, Jen Hatmaker. Guys, it's time to spring back with Marcy Walker from Black Coffee with White Friends, who gave us great insight into how Black people are navigating white spaces. Plus, I'll add in some new thoughts regarding what's been happening in our country recently and how we've so often failed Black people, which is still happening now. Hey everybody, Jen Hatmaker here. You are happy host of the For the Love podcast. Welcome, welcome to the show. So right now is fun because we're in a reimagined series, an old to new type sort of treasure hunt that I'm really enjoying because we have had so many, too many good conversations on this show that are too good to let them stay in the archives. We're evergreen here on this little show and we like to talk about stuff that's relevant always. And so before I dive into the interview we're sharing today, and spoiler alert, it is with the creator of Black Coffee with White Friends, Marcy Walker. Let me dive into why we have to keep this dialogue open and why this convo of all convos is really crucial to be having right now. Just take a little deep breath before I get into this because This is heavy and important. Our world has been heavy for so long, senselessly, right? So honestly, just like taking stock of where we're at right now, golly, we've come through a year plus of this pandemic, over a year of our lives as we knew it being shut down. Like we're going to be talking about this for decades, maybe longer, right? Our people are tired. Our first responders are exhausted to the bone. Death has run rampant. Gosh, it's a tragedy. Like businesses are shutting down. People are losing jobs. We have been stuck in our homes to the point of going bananas. Our kids, they lost their 
senior years. They lost their proms. They lost their first year of high school. They lost their last year of college. Their, they lost kindergarten, right? We're arguing still over the wearing of masks and what rules we should be following, why things don't make sense. We have just felt a ton of loss. We have collectively sat in grief, and it has been trying to say the least. Golly, you know I know. People are mean, y'all. Coming through an election season, I think it was the worst. Well, it's the worst I've ever seen. It's the worst I have personally ever experienced. Everything, and I mean everything, is politicized. Everything right now. Everything is politicized. Down to vaccinations. Which is science, right? I've never, ever seen people more divided in my lifetime, at least. It seems like basic humanitarian issues are somehow up for debate now. Rights have come up for debate. Freedom has come up for debate. It's overwhelming, and honestly, it can be scary. So I just want to sit in that with you and acknowledge it, that I feel it too in my bones. And so here we are today because... We're going to talk about racism, which, you know, we talk about a lot here on this show, and we always will because it's just as ugly as it has always been. So it's interesting to kind of listen in right now to what people are saying, like racism is just spiking and we're being divided and it's making racism worse. I'm like, no, racism is always, we were founded on this. It's our founding value. White supremacy was the cornerstone that we built this country on. There is nothing new here. This is as it has always been. And so obviously right now in the world, for reasons that just break me down. I'm I'm brokenhearted. I'm scared and I'm mad and I oscillate between not even having any hope anymore in it. Just senseless black executions are still occurring, like at an alarming rate for reasons I don't fully understand. Skin color is still determining worth and privilege and power and position. It's honestly, it's devastating. It's broken my heart, to be honest with you. And so this is where we're at in America. We're, we're really not better than we ever were, right? Like places where we are celebrating equality are still slanted. Pay parity is still slanted. Power, position, representation. Just look around, you know? If you're white and feeling defensive and thinking, no, it is, ask a black friend. Ask a black friend and give them permission to tell you the truth. Ask what their perspective is. So I don't know what else to reach for. This is the thing that I know. It is the anchor that I have held onto, I guess, my whole life. We just, we're going to have to dig deep and figure out a way to center love again. And I don't mean that in a squishy way. I don't mean that like, can't we all just get along? I don't mean that in a way that turns a blind eye to injustice and inequality. So what does it mean? You know, what does it mean? Well, I mean, for maybe starters right here, like in our own little lives, like in our little worlds that we live in, maybe we put aside our opinions and we prioritize our neighbor, right? 
Maybe it means listening, not talking over, not just rebuttal, not just defensiveness or justification, but just listening, right? It means empathy, that lost art, trying to find the best, most honorable way forward. We're all going to make mistakes when we try to love well. That's okay, because at least you are attempting to bring something beautiful and good and pure into the world. So the bottom line is that love is powerful and it matters and everyone deserves it. And it doesn't matter if you agree or disagree with that person. It doesn't matter. None of that matters. We love because that's what we're called to do. That's what we're supposed to do as humans. It is the best way. It is the highest way. It is the way of justice. It is the way of equality. It is the way of fairness. Love is the way of empathy and compassion. It is the way of the neighbor. I think it is our really highest and holiest path. So we love. Now, in case you didn't get a chance to tune into our first conversation, Marcy Alvis Walker lives, well, she used to live in Austin. She's relocated now, and that makes me mad because I love her, and she is my friend, and she has brought a lot of, like, joy and delight and wonder to my world, to my life, to my understanding. She's been a teacher and a friend Marcy has this uncanny ability to just describe in terms that anyone can get their arms around what it's like, what it's really like to navigate white spaces as a black woman. She's also very gifted at filling in the holes, which, excuse me, our entire whitewashed history needs, our history books, the stories that we tell. And she does this through which she calls her Mockingbird History Lessons. It's so brilliant. In which basically Marcy shares missing narratives that help us understand the ugly but real truth about how our nation got to where it is today and why the issue of racism is so baked into all of our processes. Her socials are chock full of resources for you and I, including live discussions, excerpts from her teachings, and other people's teachings, quotes from trustworthy leaders. She's calling out the groups who need calling out. And she's digging truth straight out of scripture. She is Jesus and justice rolled up into one being. She's gifted and we need her right now. So I'd like to share with you actually, before we jump back to it, that conversation, I'd like to share with you this post that recently she put up on her socials, which by the way, follow her immediately. So here's what she wrote. For generations, the way black people have pressed on has been to train our eye on whatever good we can find in any given situation. Mind you, we're not settling or being willfully ignorant of our circumstances. We're simply choosing an eternal presence over our current tears and terror. We look for whatever is eternal here on earth right now, just so we can continue to face the brute force challenges of the day. It's the practice of deliberately maintaining hope and joy any which way. And it's a revolutionary act, much like the many times we continued to sing while bound in chains like Paul and Silas. This practice of joy is not only holy, but essential in order to practice any act of love. There's little chance of any hope of finding a reason to love without it. Isn't that good? let that sink in, the weight of those beautiful words. So 
in light of the outcome of the Derek Chauvin trial, where he was convicted on all three counts of the murder of George Floyd, it's tempting, especially for white people, to feel compelled to say, well, that is a huge leap in the name of racial justice. But I think it's really important to insert a reminder here that we don't center our own response to how this feels. And and what I'm hearing from my black friends and the black leaders that I follow and listen to is that it really isn't justice. It was accountability and we're grateful for it. But justice would have been George Floyd alive. Justice would have been a traffic stop that didn't end up as an on-the-spot execution, right? That's justice. Justice is getting your fair day in court like your white counterpart probably would have. That's justice. And so to that end, Marcy has been doing these incredible subscription-based weekly Bible studies on her website every week called Black-Eyed Bible Study. And she has one called Letters that talks about the Chauvin trial and other really important content, like the letter Paul wrote to the Philippians from jail. I cannot encourage you enough to go to her site and check out what she has to say about this. I'm so happy to bring this conversation back to the forefront. And if you missed her the first time, I'm happy to introduce you to Marcy. I want you to know her. I want you to follow her and learn from her. I want you to listen to her. She's a trustworthy guide, full of faithfulness, like stubbornly full of joy and hope. She's a good friend. She's beautiful. So I'm just going to throw that in the soup pot. And I'm lucky she's in my life. So I'm really pleased to share a throwback to my conversation with the insightful and wonderful Marcy Walker. Kind of want to go back because you're such a experiential expert of what it is like to navigate primarily white spaces. This is a conversation that has been really centered this year and so worthy of attention and, and furthering this discussion. I want to, I wonder if you could talk for a minute about in this country, when we celebrate holidays, like the 4th of July, like Memorial day or veterans day, Columbus day, I wonder if you could talk about what you feel on those days and how those days mean something differently. If you are a white American, if you are a black American, how those have been established in our dominant culture vernacular. History aside, that's secondary, if not third. But, you know, it's a story we've told ourselves. And so I would love to hear you pick up that baton and, and talk to us a little bit about those sorts of days in this sort of country. Yeah, this is big. Here's the thing. When we first heard, when Black people first heard, make America great again. When we first heard that, we didn't know how that could possibly include our collected history. How how can it, you know? dial it back to 1980s and the stop and frisk and all the policing that was just beginning to happen. The war on drugs, yeah. Right? 
dial it back to, okay, 1970s, most schools were still being integrated. There were still riots happening. Dial it back to the 60s, dial it back to the 50s. So when, for us, would we, what time, what line would we pick where we would say, okay, this is when America was great, right? And that's not just for Black people. You have to think about the gay and queer community. That's right. What that would feel like for them. You have to think about what that would feel like to the Asian American community and internment camps and the Chinese Exclusion Act. So when all these things were happening and, and America is celebrating its freedom, the oxymoron of that is that so many people were still captive. But they figured since they're not going to consider them to be people, they're just oxen and they're just, you know, tools, that that's okay. They're not real people. They're, they're, they're something else. I have no problems with Veterans Day and Memorial Day, but I want to remember the soldiers and the veterans who never got their proper due. A lot of people don't know that Black veterans and women didn't receive this GI Bill. They didn't get parades. And the history shows that when these African-American soldiers came back and were in uniform, they were attacked by white men who were disgusted that they were proud of their service. And so we have riots that happen because of Black men who wanted to be recognized as humans after fighting a war, World War II in particular, where Americans were saying, humans should not be treated this way. And yet, at the same time, Americans are putting Asian people and Italian people in internment camps. And so it's very hard to celebrate Fourth of July. It's very difficult to celebrate Columbus Day because we're celebrating colonization when we, when we celebrate those things. And so I am not saying that you cannot have your barbecue and you cannot have your grills. I grew up with men on the block, black fathers on the block. They all would bring out their grills and, and they would celebrate these holidays, but we can't celebrate them blindly and without any sort of reverence or any sort of understanding of what it means to say that America gained its independence without giving independence to all human beings on the soil. We have to understand that when they wrote We the People, it didn't include poor people, poor whites. It didn't include people who didn't own land. It didn't include women. It didn't include children. And it didn't include Black people. It didn't include Native American people. It didn't include anyone but white have men, men that had land that they taken. And the whole Constitution, the beauty of the Constitution, I think, is that we have all these amendments and we have all these acts, which have really saved our country from being locked into this patriarchy that we don't have to participate in. We don't, we choose to participate in it. The laws and the amendments have made it so that we can freely not participate in that, but we choose to participate in it. The 13th Amendment needs to be totally redone with how we treat inmates. But 
it's not affecting white America right now. But the more that that affects white America, I think there will be changes to that too. When their children are being incarcerated for the same crimes, because eventually that's what power does. Sure. So right now, power is all about stamping out brown and black people. That's what it is. But eventually, when it's beneficial to the powers that be to stamp out white, middle class, and lower class and poor, they'll do that too. And when that starts to happen, then white Americans who vote will see that you're, you voted against yourself. You're voting against yourself. You're voting against yourself and you're allowing power to stay within only a, a selected few. I mean, just look at our government. Totally. <laughs> look at our mayors, look at our governors, and you will see that they do not represent. They don't. The people, even, even if we took color out of it, they still wouldn't represent the people who are most affected by laws and amendments and acts and bills. Yeah, thank you for that. I want to talk about another space. Our culture has done a deep disservice over time, obviously, in how beauty is defined, which, you know, sometimes seems no larger in scope than thin, sleek, and white, right? So deeply affects the way little girls view themselves, all little girls, but especially little girls of color. I read a study as recent as 2005 where, you know, young black girls had two dolls put in front of them, a white doll and a black doll, and said, point to the one that is smart or pretty. And overwhelmingly, they point to the white doll. I just wonder if you can talk a little bit more about this this space too, about what it is like to have to fight to be recognized with beauty and dignity as a Black woman in a white culture that defines beauty as largely white. Yeah. And if you Google beauty, you'll get mostly white, thin, young women. Yes, young. I forgot this could that. Be a whole podcast. I forgot the age. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I am feeling that at 51. And I lived for a long time with young and thin privilege, and that's a privilege for a long time. I may not have had white, blonde, blue-eyed, but I had young and thin for a long time. And um, now I don't. And so to live without those privileges, what that feels like, it feels like an invisibility. Like you're just, you're just invisible. You're just not seen. And when you are seen, you're seen as a nuisance. I don't know if you know of Roxane Gay or Trustee McMillan Cotton. Sure. Her book, Hunger, wrecked me. Roxane Gay's book, Hunger, wrecked me. And then right after that, I read Thick by Trustee McMillan Cotton. Did not know the two of them knew each other. Did not know that they were going to do Here to Slay. But the way that they talk about the beauty problem, the problem with beauty in our culture is so brilliant. I I highly recommend those books. But as for me personally, to raise a daughter, I remember having a conversation with Nadia, this is just to put a point to it, where I said to her, we would notice that there were boys who clearly liked her when she was going to this all white Christian school, we could see that these boys truly liked her, like we could see it. And I'm not lying. My daughter's accused button, just adorable and every beautiful in every way that you could think inside and out. 
But I told her, and it was really kind of a heartbreaking night. I said, you know what? It's going to take a very brave boy to cross that barrier. I said, because all of his life, he's been told that what he wants is something like his mother. He wants someone who looks like his mom, who's beautiful and who's in the way that his mom is beautiful, who's white and thin. And it's going to be very hard for a boy to extract himself from that identity and date who he wants. And so time and time again, we would find that she was the girl sitting on the side even though these boys would text and they would clearly like her, they always picked the girl that they were expected to pick. And so just like the dolls in front of kids, why well, have to pick the girl? When we moved to a more diverse school, she was blown away with how much that didn't matter. And boys were, we were a little worried because boys were coming they were coming, coming over hard the walls. Fast. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 And lucky for us, she, was, she wasn't there yet. And I think we also have to realize that the beauty standards, and this is where I say so often we shoot ourselves in the foot, especially white America, the beauty standards that are set up there are out of a racist ideology that came out of eugenics that's all in our history of how white people were going to make themselves look different than Black people right? And that this is what the beauty standard was going to be. And if you didn't fit this, then you were somehow slovenly, lazy, all these things that we attach to blackness or difference. And so when you have that happen, you lock white women into impossible standards too. So this is not just worth it. It's not just worth it for black people to break down that um that that it's it's good for the health of all of us especially our daughters and our sons because we also have this culture of young men who have a certain idea of what they're they're entitled to have and missing the whole point of what makes a beautiful relationship so i think we really do have to talk about the history of racism within the world of beauty the products for lightening skin all the hair you know yeah we have to talk about oh my gosh the diet the diet that that you had to eat these things and not these things because that's what poor people eat and that's what you don't want to be that and we are still doing it we're doing this eliteness with our food and i'm i'm just as guilty of it and i have to catch myself i'm undoing that this is great book called fear of the black body by oh gosh it's the history of fat phobia and the racist link to it and it's it's extraordinary oh great okay i'll make sure that we link to that yeah in the podcast so yeah so so this is not by chance yeah, this, this of course is, it's not we weren't always this way we weren't always dieting and we weren't always doing this stuff. And in, in the church, it's, it's important that we talk about it because what we've done is we've washed, every time we hear that word beauty, that Sarah was beautiful, that Esther was beautiful, we have them plucked, shaved, coiffed, white. It's ridiculous. I'm like, no one was doing soul cycle. 
there was no waxing happening. These were Middle Eastern women. There were unibrows happening there, point. I am quite sure. And yet we have made, it, made this European beauty out of That's them. True. When more than likely, Sarah was past the age, she was menopausal. We know what, I know what that looks like. I know exactly what that body looks like. I see it every day. And let me tell you, it's not the pictures that we see people making of Sarah where she has a slim waist and she's, she's just, her skin is just supple. None of that is happening. There's no skincare products. We have to think that they lived in the desert. I mean, what they perceived as being beautiful looks nothing like what, I don't know what it looked like, but I do know what it didn't look like. And it didn't look like a skin peel. And it didn't look like Botox lips. It just didn't look like yeah. that. Yeah. Great point. I like that you brought that in because those were visuals and ideas that were implanted in a lot of our spiritual psyche super early, which finds its way into all of our, the way we perceive the world and beauty, a million things. I'm going to ask you this one last question before we kind of begin to land the plane here. Your work on your blog and your social media accounts is really powerful and profound. And I'm, I can't wait for everybody to get off this podcast and go follow you just to see the way in which you lead. You have a very special wisdom to you. So let me ask you this. When we come to those spaces that we've, you and I have been talking about where Black people have been failed tremendously in our country the holidays, the history books, the way our schools are set up, the beauty standards, all of it. How can me and my white siblings use our influence best here? What do you think it looks like to hold space and center the stories of our Black siblings in the most useful way possible that is genuine and sincere? It is not performative. It is not incomplete. We are in this fight together. Because like right. I said, it's all, it's all connected. You know, when Jesus says the least shall be first and the first shall be last, I think of it as a circle. We think of it because we're Western. We think of it as some sort of punitive thing, like a, some sort of weighty scales. But if he didn't come to condemn and he came for unity, it can't be scales. Like it just can't be, Jesus can't be about scales. But what I think it was, is if you think about it, if the least shall be first and the first shall be last, that's circular. But what I would say is the way to use your influence is to influence those that you, conversations that I can't have. I've said this so much. And the best way to have those conversations, the best way to feel most confident going into those conversations is to know this country's history. And I mean, the untold stories, especially know how the Civil War came to be because we're still fighting this war. So we need to know, like, how did we become divided? How did the Democratic Party become the party of the liberals when it used to be the party of the conservatives? How did all this stuff happen? So that when you go to your parents, when you go to your uncles, when you go into your church settings and things are said that are not true and things are done that are damaging, especially in the schools, when you read something in your kid's textbook 
you know the history and you know where that stems from and you can you can see it because if you don't know the history you'll read it you won't see it you won't see it because they don't want you to of course so i think that is like one thing know your history get to know the history i can't stress that enough and i think find your broken white young men and boys and love them well Wow. Every story I hear, I do a lot of listening to ex-white supremacists. How did they land there? And I can't tell you how often the story is that this young boy was looking for an identity and the church didn't give him one. Parents were a mess and, and couldn't give him one. Or their, their identity was whiteness. We need to be able to give these boys a different identity that doesn't make them load up a gun and have their mother drive them to a protest because they have the identity of patriotism. We have to give a, a different identity to these young boys, but they're not going to come to my house for dinner. That's right. You know? <laughs> but they're going to go to yours. That's good. And I just think there's a lot to be done with our young white men. I do. But I, I think there's a lot of power there that we, we tend to not tap into. And I think to have young white men who are in the streets protesting on the behalf of Black Lives Matter, to me, is more profound than any other demographic because they absolutely don't have to be in the street. They don't, they don't have to care. So I just feel that if you're going to, uh, sure, read our books, definitely sign up for my Mockingbird history lessons. I wish as much as I love my Black Coffee with White Friends feed, it's, it's sad for me that the, the history lessons are maybe 10% of the people who follow me on Black Coffee. So there's this thing where I'm like, I love that you guys love this space because I love it too. But I also want you to do the work. Yes. Great, right, you guys? So salient, so relevant, so what we need to hear right now. I love how Marcy lovingly instructs us on how to use your influence in your position to make room at the table, right? Like to open up conversations to and for the benefit of our Black brothers and sisters when we have the capacity to do so. I mean, to put in the work because they've had to for far too long. And now this is ours. It is on us to make these changes happen, like in our workplaces, in our communities, in our churches, right? I think it's also good to be reminded that functions of white power and white supremacy exist at every level in our nation, right? And to know how we actually ended up in this place, which was on purpose, this was structured and planned, right? And Marcy gives us these actionable things that we can do to start heading down a path of healing, which I'm so grateful for, right? Not just sort of an assessment of what's wrong, but here's some steps to do to make it right. And then, of course, she helps us look at how we define beauty and what the standards are and how we start upending those, too. And that's a big deal to me, not just as a mom to daughters, but as a mom to a black daughter, too. 
And it's pretty stunning. I mean, I remember how I felt when I began to realize how history and textbooks and the beauty industry and all of it has been whitewashed. It's a work to unlearn what we have been taught and fed all our entire lives and why it's so important that you and I do this for the future, for future generations. So her guidance on the most useful ways for a white person to hold space for black stories is just invaluable. And I'm grateful to her emotional labor here for us today. And I'm really happy that you listened. If you haven't already, go follow Marcy everywhere you can. Download her content. Subscribe to her stuff. You will not be sorry, you guys. All right. More to come next week. See you then. <laughs>